0: Welcome to our series, 40 Days with Jesus. I'm Jared Kirk, pastor at Renewal Church. And the reason we're doing this series is because no one who spent time with Jesus came away unchanged, whether it was Peter or Mary Magdalene, whether it was Zacchaeus or an unnamed woman in a story, Jesus was completely life-changing to those who spent time with him. And if you're new to Christianity or new to our church, I want to invite you on this journey with us. We're in the middle of it. We're reading through the book of Luke on a daily basis. Um, So we'll be finishing the entire book of Luke, the story of Jesus' life in 40 days. And today we're thinking about forgiveness. I think most of us understand how good it feels to be forgiven from our own lives, whether that was in a big way or a small way. I know when I was a teenager, I was about 18, 19 years old. And I didn't have a car, but my parents had cars and they let me borrow them. And so we had like three or four cars in the driveway because it was our family and they were teenagers. And so I say, hey mom, can I borrow your car? She says, no problem. So I hop in her car, I put it in reverse to back out of the driveway, I hit the accelerator, and crunch my mom's car into my dad's car. I just destroyed the bumpers of both cars. It was a total disaster. Now, like a coward, I drove away <laughs> because I'm terrified of my mom. And I, I didn't want to tell her about it. And here's the real thing. Like, I, I really wasn't, you know, the, I, I, at that moment, I wasn't thinking about the money. I wasn't thinking about, you know, what am I going to do about this car? What am I going to, I was like, my mom is going to be so mad at me. My dad is going to be so mad at me. My dad wasn't home, so I had to call my dad. I had to let him know what happened, and I was just thinking, you know, um, this is not going to go well. I call him on the phone, and he said, hey, um, it's okay. I'm glad you're okay. Um, I forgive you, and we'll figure out the money part of it later. To me, you know, it was like, the figuring out the money part, I, I was okay with that. You know, I was like, "This is my fault." Just the fact that my dad said, "I forgive you," that our relationship was in a good place, it was like there was a weight lifted off of my shoulders. And most of us know the joy of what it feels like to be forgiven. I came across, um, I came across just hundreds of stories this week as I was researching this of people who were forgiveness forgiven, people who were given presidential pardons, people whose spouses came through for them, people who were forgiving those who had harmed people that they love. But for most of us, it's, it's not these huge life-shaping moments. It's these little moments with people that we hurt. Because when you're in a relationship with people and you love people, forgiveness has to be a part of that. Now, today, as we look at the words of Jesus, we're not thinking as much about that interpersonal relationship that happens with all of us. We're thinking very specifically about God's forgiveness towards us. And this is a, this is a core component and a piece of Christianity that's right at the very center of what we believe. Although I find that for many people in our society, when I talk to my neighbors about this, it, it's not entirely clear anymore why forgiveness is a necessary component of a relationship with God. But if you think for just a moment, you know, when you love someone and you live with someone, when you when you share a space with someone that you love, forgiveness will have to be at least some part of that relationship. You know what I'm saying? They're going to steal your hairbrush. They're going to lay they're going to lay down on your bed, they're going to they're going to sit on your bed with their same jeans that they wore when they sat on the tee. You know what I'm saying? And forgiveness is going to have to be a part of that relationship. We all know that just from our regular human relationships, forgiveness is a component of that when you love someone and live with someone. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that, okay, if that's how human relationships work, and the Bible teaches that God loves us, that there's a relationship of of love between God and people, that forgiveness must enter into that somehow. It must be different than with people because while we can wrong God, God's not going to wrong us because he's perfect and loving in all of his ways. So what does that forgiveness piece look like between us and God? And that's what Jesus invites us to consider in the story of the woman. It is, it is sometimes called um, the, sto- the, the story of Christ at the house of Simon the Pharisee because the woman, who's really the center of the story, doesn't have, uh, isn't given a name in this story. And the, the power of this story is in the contrast. And how it applies to your life and my life is in the contrast. First, you have Simon the Pharisee, and we saw some of the, the, the famous artwork, most of it from the Renaissance around this story. And Simon the Pharisee is wealthy, staid, morally upright. He's judgmental. He is obsessed with purity. He is socially important, and he's spiritually curious. That's Simon. Simon. But on the other side, you have an unnamed woman who is effusive, she's morally corrupt, she's impure, she's cavalier, she's improper, she's a social outcast, and she's spiritually awakened, she's an unnamed woman. And when Jesus tells the story of the two debtors to Simon, the point of the, de- the, the, point of the parable is crystal clear. Because he gives us the point of the parable in Luke 7, 47, Jesus says, I tell you her sins and they are many have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only a little love. Jesus' point, if you wanted to summarize it, is something like extravagant love is the natural response to extravagant forgiveness. And that's written on the front of your teaching notes today. If you want to follow along in your teaching notes, the verses, and there's some blanks in there as well the point of Jesus' parable is that extravagant love is the natural response to extravagant forgiveness. And I think that for most of us, like, we get that. You know, if you're forgiven something incredible, does that not pull love out of your heart? Like, we understand that just on a human level, that the greater of the thing you're forgiven, the greater the debt is wiped away, the the more love comes out of you and pours out of you, at least it ought to. We also know people who have been forgiven. We know people who have had their debt wiped away and there was no love and there was no gratitude. And when we saw that, we thought, you know, there's something wrong about that. There's something kind of gross about that. And so we know that Jesus' point lands home as human beings. We can see that extravagant love is the natural response to extravagant forgiveness. I mean, can you just imagine for one second if someone just paid off your student loans? How good would that feel? There's somebody praising over here. I mean, it's like hands-up moment. Can you imagine if someone just said, hey, listen, student loans paid for? Or what if somebody said uh, to those of you who uh, don't have student loans anymore, hey, the, the mortgage on your condo, I'm just gonna pay it off. You're just not gonna owe anything on it anymore. Can you imagine how good that would feel? Right? Extravagant forgiveness calls forth extravagant love. We, we get the principle. But the story invites us to consider some things about our lives, it actually invites us to change. And it's the contrast between the woman and Simon that creates a question that we have to deal with. You see, in the story here, we have a notorious sinner weeping at the feet of Jesus, and we have a respected member of society. And this whole encounter with Jesus leads us to to this idea that it's better to be a notorious sinner weeping at the feet of Jesus than a respected member of society who is confused and disgusted by true repentance. Repentance. The question that this story poses to us is, how do I live less like Simon the Pharisee and more like the woman at Jesus' feet? Have you ever felt imprisoned by other people's opinions of you? Have you ever felt um, been more concerned about being seen as an upright, pure person than you have about people? or? Um, most of us would say no to that. So, um, um, have you ever been too um, too busy or too disgusted to slow down um, for someone on the side of the sidewalk near Copley Square? Um, and there was a part of you that thought that's that's pretty gross. Have you ever been unaware of your own need for grace? gone through a day and just felt like, I'm doing pretty good today. I'm having a great day. That's essentially the life of Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee is imprisoned by other people's opinions. He's more concerned about purity than about people. He's unaware of his own need for grace. And sometimes we live like that. The question of the story is though, how can we live more like the woman, the unnamed woman at Jesus' feet? Think about this, would your life be more more joyful if you felt like this? You were released from the prison of other people's opinions. Have you ever felt the freedom of just not giving a crap about what other people think about you? Am I allowed to say that? No, okay. It bothers my wife when I say that, sorry. You know how good that feels just to not care what other people think? That's the woman at Jesus' feet. To, To live a life where just love and gratitude pour out of you, Would you be more joyful if you were aware of your need for grace moment by moment? Would you be more joyful if you were encountering Jesus not as just sort of spiritually curious but in intensely personal way? You'd better believe your life would be more joyful. That is the woman at Jesus' feet. How do we live less like Simon the Pharisee and more like the unnamed woman? How do we live with the same extravagant love for Jesus that that woman was pouring out at his feet in his house? And we see three things in our encounter today. And if you open up your teaching notes to the inside, there's three ideas for you: that we live more like the woman; we live with extravagant love for Jesus. When number one, I acknowledge my debt. If you're a note taker, write that down. The first step to acknowledging your your um, to living with extravagant love for Jesus is acknowledging the debt. We said extravagant love is a natural response to extravagant forgiveness, but most of us, most of the time, don't sense our need for forgiveness immediately because we haven't acknowledged our debt. When you know you're in debt, you know you need debt forgiveness. And this story we are encountering is about two people acknowledging their debt. In the first section of the story, it focuses relentlessly on this woman at Jesus' feet. She's referred to as a sinful woman, and it's a small town. Many of you are from small towns, and you know how everyone in the town can know your business. And this woman has a reputation that precedes her into Simon's house, and that she's a sinful woman. Whatever that means, whatever it is for her, and you can use your imagination, the story kind of leaves it up to your imagination. What she does to Jesus is awkward and off-putting. She lets her hair down, which is a major cultural no-no. It's exposing a part of a woman's body that in that particular time was seen of as immodest. She's crying on his feet. She's anointing his feet with oil, and people are uncomfortable. And Simon the Pharisee thinks, that's disgusting. He thinks, I would never let a woman like that touch my feet. And that's why he says, if Jesus were a prophet, he would, he would never let a woman like that touch his feet. It's undignified. It's unclean. That's what Simon's thinking. And Jesus knows people's thoughts. And so he answers Simon's thoughts in Luke 7, 41 through 42. And he answers with the parable. It's a two sentence, three sentence parable. He says, a man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? So one owed, that, one owed about two months' wages. So what would you make in about two months? That's a 50-piece uh, debt. The other owed about a year and a half worth of wages, right? So just picking a random number, if you made, you know, $4,000 a month, then one person owes $8,000, the other person owes $80,000, in Greek, it's talking about denarius, which is uh, one piece of silver. It's one day's wage for a day labor. It says 50 denari- denarii and 500. And obviously, the woman in this parable is the one with the 500 denarius debt, right? She's the one with the huge debt, and, except that this is a moral debt, not a financial debt. And the woman owes big time, and she can't repay it. That's part of the parable. And I kind of wonder if Simon the Pharisee agrees with this part of the story. He's like, he sees this woman who's down here. She's obviously immoral. Like this, this, uh, so far, this is all in Simon the Pharisee's worldview, right? That if you're that kind of sinner, you owe God a huge debt. It's a 500 denarius debt. You could never pay that debt. I mean, this is solidly in Simon's way of thinking. Immoral people owe God a debt, and this woman is the biggest sinner of all. However... Jesus here doesn't tell the story of one debtor whose debt was forgiven. He tells the story of two debtors whose debt is forgiven. One of them is in huge debt. It's obvious they're totally broke and can't repay it. That's the sinful woman. But there's also a 50 denarii debt in this story. And you know who that is? It's Simon the Pharisee. Jesus very subtly but very clearly brings Simon right into the middle of this parable And in doing so, Jesus shows us that there are two ways to be a debtor to God. One is by being very, very bad. It's it's the one we all kind of know. It's the person with the reputation around town. It's the sinful woman. But the other way to be in debt to God is by being so religious, such a rule follower, so self-righteous, so obsessed with purity that you can't love the people that are right in front of you. Simon sees this woman who is clearly broken and hurting deeply. In fact, what she's doing is repenting of her sins. And Simon is so obsessed with purity that even repentance is gross to him. Simon is a debtor to God, just like the woman in. But he's in a worse position than she is because his religious observance has blinded him to the fact that he's a debtor to God. Or, To put it more simply, Jesus tells a story that invites us to consider that everyone has a debt they cannot pay. Everyone has a debt. People who are very, very bad and people who are very, very good. People who are religious and so religious that they become self-righteous and they fail to love the people who are right in front of them. Everyone has a debt they cannot pay. Some people's debt is more public. Some people's sins go in front of them. And some people's debt is more hidden Their their sins trail behind them, but everyone owes a moral debt to God. This idea is echoed throughout the entire Bible. The clearest place is in Romans 3.23, where it says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. And that word everyone in Greek means everyone. There's no exceptions. Jews, Greeks, men, women, immoral, moral, righteous, unrighteous, Pharisees and prostitutes, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which is why if you want to live with the extravagant love that this woman shows Jesus, you have to start by acknowledging your debt. You see, Simon is, is spiritually curious about Jesus. Like, hey, come over to my house. Let's just kind of see what's happening here. This woman is just is worshiping Jesus. And the difference between them is one of them knows they have a debt and one of them doesn't. That's why the very first thing you have to do is acknowledge your debt before God. Have you acknowledged your debt? Has your religion caused you to view certain people as disgusting sinners instead of broken human beings? Have you focused more on other people's debt than your own? How about Jesus' parables where he's talking about, hey, um, you know, you're walking around, you see the splinter in everybody else's eye, but you can't see the log that's in your own eye. Why? Because this is a natural human tendency to focus more on the debt of other people than your own moral debt to God. One of my favorite quotes about this from Solzhenitsyn is that in the, every human heart has one corner of it that is still unredeemed. Have you acknowledged your own debt? If extravagant love is a natural response to extravagant forgiveness, you have to know what your debt load is. And after you have learned what debt you owe next, you need to know that you are in fact forgiven. So that leads us to the second thing we see in the story. If I want to live with extravagant love for Jesus, I do that when I receive God's debt forgiveness. That's the second idea here. Now I didn't. I know that that actually sounds a little cheesy. Receive God's debt forgiveness. I, I picked that very carefully because it is in the thought world of what's happening in the parable here. That when we think about moral brokenness before God, Jesus is explaining it like a debt that's been wiped away. That God forgives your debt. So after we see the, the, the debt that both people owe, we see the forgiveness that Jesus offers. He mentions it in the parable, when he says in the parable that the, the debtor, he, he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? But Jesus also brings forgiveness out of the story into the real world when he says, he looks at the woman and he tells, you also notice he tells Simon, he says, look at the woman, because Simon doesn't even see a person there. He has to be told, hey, look, pay attention. Jesus looks at the woman, Luke seven forty-eight through 50. And he says to her, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We are so used to linking the ideas of Jesus and forgiveness together, whether you're a church person or not, like those, those, those thoughts are linked together conceptually in our minds that we tend to skip over how odd this exchange really is. Here's a woman who's a well-known sinner in her small town. She probably sinned against her husband. She probably sinned against the other wives in the town. But she didn't sin against Jesus. He just show, he's been wandering town to town. He just showed up. And I mean, if you visited her town, you stopped by next Thursday, would you ever dream of like finding this woman and saying, I forgive you? Like, Not unless you're the pope. I mean, that's a, that's a weird thing to do. And yet here's Jesus. He shows up in her town, and he says, I forgive you. It's like, what do you have to forgive her for? She didn't sin against you. She didn't hurt you. But Jesus here is forgiving her on behalf of God. Jesus is forgiving her as though she had sinned against him. He's acting, Jesus is acting here as though he were God. I'm just gonna pause, pastoral moment here. People encounter this idea in our broader culture all the time that Jesus didn't have this self-understanding or identity that he was divine, that maybe that was, it's not present in the first three gospels, that in the gospel of John, they wrote that into Jesus' life. That's crazy. You have to be completely biblically illiterate to think that Jesus didn't constantly claim to be divine. There's constantly people picking up stones to try to kill him because they say, he's saying that he's divine. It's happening everywhere in the Bible. Here you have that self-understanding for Jesus where there's this lady who sinned against people and against God, and Jesus says, I forgive you, he's acting like he thinks he's God because that is exactly what is happening in this text. Now, most modern people don't understand their need for forgiveness because they see God as loving, kind, merciful, and compassionate, and God is all of those things. But according to the Bible, he's also holy. He's also unimaginably powerful. He's also a perfect judge. And therefore, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He is both the lion and the lamb. This is captured perfectly in Numbers fourteen eighteen. Listen to the, the almost contradiction in this verse. It says, the Lord is slow to anger. He is, a, he is filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, but he does not excuse the guilty. It's like, how does that work? God forgives every kind of sin and rebellion, but he also does not excuse the guilty? How can he forgive every sin and rebellion and also not excuse the guilt? Isn't forgiving every kind of sin excusing the guilty? That's, That's what it is. How does that work? That's a serious spiritual question. And the answer of how God is both perfectly merciful and forgiving and also a perfect judge at the same time is that he does it through the cross. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 teaches us how this forgiveness works. It says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. The record of the charges is used in Greek antiquity, it's an IOU. So like, if I owe you a debt and you've loaned me money, so you loaned me $1,000, we would write out a record of the charges. You know, it's like, you loaned me $1,000 on this date, and here's a record of what I owe you. And according to the Bible, that what was happening at the cross was there was a list of everything you did that was a, that was a debt to God. It was a moral debt to God. There was a list, you know, and it's like, like when I imagine it's sort of like... Um, Santa's list in Elf, it just just goes on and on and on, right? It's like the list of all all the ways Jared has screwed up his life and hurt other people and sinned against God and been prayerless and wasted my time and not worshiped him and lived for myself instead of living for him and hurt other people, hurt the people who were closest to me, spoken out of anger. You know, it's like just on and on and on and on and on. The way that I've used people instead of loved people, the way that I have used people to feel significant or powerful instead of serving other people, and the list goes on and on and on. And every single one of us has a list like that. And according to Colossians, the way God deals with that is he takes that list that of all the debt you owe, and he nails it to the cross. So you are forgiven, and the record of the charges against you is canceled on the cross. And if you think, well, who could ever pay that debt? That's what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the debt for your sins to be forgiven so that they could be wiped out. It says, paid in full on your record of charges against you. That's what happened at the cross. God forgave your debt. It's gone. And that's also why I think... In our society as well, people don't understand why Jesus had to die. Why can't God just forgive? Because your debt was expensive. It cost Jesus his whole life. That's why Christians are always talking about the blood. His blood that was shed on the Christ is the price that was paid so that your debt could be forgiven. So your work, therefore, is not to earn forgiveness, but to receive the forgiveness that God has paid for. Um, In 1829, there was a man named George Wilson, and he robbed a mail carrier and killed him. And through an incredible series of circumstances and events, the president, Andrew Jackson, in 1833, pardoned him from the death penalty but to the shock of the Oval Office, he rejected the presidential pardon. The President of the United States had set him free. George Wilson said no, and they had to send the case to the Supreme Court of the United States because the issue was simply this. If the President of the U.S. gives you a pardon, aren't you pardoned? Can you even reject a pardon given to you by a sovereign? Chief Justice Marshall rendered the decision. It read essentially this. A pardon rejected is not a pardon at all. Unless the recipient of the pardon accepts the pardon, then the pardon cannot be applied. A pardon has two sides. The one who offers it, the one who receives it. And unless the person actually receives the offer from the offerer, then the pardon cannot be mandated. On the cross, the eternal God, having been satisfied by the death of his son, has offered every man, every woman, and every child, every boy, every girl, a pardon. But we have to accept the pardon that God offers. And so if the first step is to recognize your debt, the second is to receive the forgiveness of the debt that God offers, to receive God's pardon if you want that extravagant love where you live like the unnamed woman, you've got to receive God's forgiveness. And that leads us to the last idea. I live with extravagant love for Jesus when I return to praise him for his forgiveness. You know, when we come away from this story, our lasting impression is the extravagant love of the forgiven. We see this this woman who's so grateful to Jesus for wiping away her debt. She doesn't care what other people think. She's wiping her feet with her hair. She puts the expensive ointment on. The ointment on her, on, she put on his feet probably cost a month's wages or more. She models for us the response of extravagant love for Jesus when her debt has been paid. She returns to praise him. And Jesus lets her do it. I, I always think that's so interesting about the story, right? She's, she's there at his feet. It's in, like everyone's awkward in this moment because she's, do, she's doing something. It's, it's, it's not common in that society either to get down and cry on someone's feet and wipe it with your hair. Like everyone's on edge. They're like, oh, this is really awkward. And you would think Jesus would say, hey, sweetie, not, not right now, maybe later after dinner, come back and we can talk afterwards or whatever. He just lets her do it. Jesus approves of this extravagant praise for him. Luke seven forty seven. he says, I tell you, her sins and they are many have been forgiven, so she has shown me much love, but a person who has forgiven little shows only a little love. Jesus is driving the point home to Simon the Pharisee that her, when she returns to praise him for his forgiveness, it is good, it is worthy, it is wonderful. He is telling them that extravagant love is the natural response to extravagant forgiveness. When you acknowledge your own debt clearly, your love for Jesus grows. When you receive his forgiveness offered freely, your love for Jesus grows, but you still have to return to praise him. And it might cost you something. The woman at Jesus' feet, her praise is costly. It costs her status. You think about the, the, um, the embarrassment of coming before the most important person, one of the wealthiest people in the town, and a lot of people are clearly gathered there. The servants are wondering what you're doing. The important people are like, what's she doing here? You don't even belong here. It costs her status in the community. It costs her reputation. She lets her hair down, so she's, now she's being seen as someone who's just, just transgressing all the social boundaries. She doesn't get it. Why would you live like that? Would you be modest like that? It just doesn't make sense. It costs her money. The ointment that she's putting on Jesus' feet is costly to her. And she's modeling for us this extravagant love and asking us the question, will you return to praise him? Even if it's costly. What if it costs you your status in the social world? What if... Returning to praise Him means being embarrassed in front of your peers. What if it costs you your reputation at work? Will you return to praise Him? I, I, um, at a, I was at a different church in Boston before we started this one attending, and there was a man there who was a postdoc in research, um, genetic research, and he said, "Yeah, when people at work find out that I'm a Christian, they just knock 15 points off my IQ." They think, I'm, they think I'm a fool. They think I'm an idiot for believing that. It costs him his reputation. Will you return to praise him if it costs your reputation? Will you be able to pay the cost of, if it costs financially, to give generously out of grateful joy? This woman is like, for her, money is nothing because she's found the true treasure of Jesus. Will you be able to give generously out of grateful joy, not out of obligation or under compulsion? Will you return to praise Him? Or maybe returning to praise Him means showing up to serve Him. You know, uh, next Sunday, we have the event at Mary Ellen McCormick where we're going to try to create a safe, fun place for kids to have Halloween trick-or-treat. We're going to share some love with uh, some hope with a community that could use a little bit of hope. Um, and the Bible says that, you know, when you offer even a cup of cold water to a little one in my name, you know, Jesus sees that. And, um, you know, we need, a, we need a few more people to be a part of that, you know, on the back of the connection card. It says, send me info about the Halloween outreach and maybe that's what it means to return to praise him is to serve others in his name. Will you return to praise him? So many of us have forgotten our first love. We've forgotten the greatness of Jesus' forgiveness to us. We're suffering from memory loss, and our memory loss has led to love loss. Ephesians 1.7 is our memory verse for this week with 40 Days of Jesus, and it says this, He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. Our freedom from Satan's sin and death was purchased with the blood of his son. Our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins was purchased with the blood of his son. Will you return to praise him? Um, When we began today, I told you how I crashed my parents' cars into each other. It wasn't maybe the highlight of my teenage years. And my dad did forgive me, and our relationship was in a good place, but we hadn't settled the money issue. So the next time I came home from college, he said, hey, we need to talk about this. So I went in to go talk to my dad about it, and he said, my mother and I have decided not to make you pay to fix the cars. And I'm like, why? And he's like, honestly, we don't think you'll even be able to pay it. And I was working as a nighttime security guard, so he was right, you know. And I just, you know, it feels good when your dad wipes your debt out. And so many of you, you know, your father has paid your debt in full. You have a debt, you you can't even pay it back if you want to. But you're still trying. You're still acting like you could pay him back. But the secret to this extravagant love is to receive the forgiveness. Let him cancel your debt and then just return to praising. Let's pray together. As the worship team comes back up, I want to give you an opportunity as we bow our head and close our eyes to receive the forgiveness of God today. Some of you have never taken that step and crossed the line of faith and said, you know, I want Jesus to be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. And if that's you, and you want to know that you have a relationship with God as your Father, you can pray this prayer silently along in your heart as I pray out loud. God, I acknowledge my debt. There may have been times when I was hiding it or ignoring it or denying it, but I acknowledge my debt to you today. I wanna receive the forgiveness that your son Jesus purchased for me. I need him to be my forgiver and the leader of my life. God, would you come into my life and rescue me from my sin and set me free from, from my sin in Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you have prayed that today, I want to encourage you to check the box on the back of your connection card that says my next step today is to receive, my forgiveness, receive forgiveness of my sins through Jesus Christ and drop it in the offering basket in a minute. But all of us have a chance to return to praise him right now as we sing one final song together. So I want to invite you to stand with me and make this song a chance to praise him for his work in your life.